How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. I mean, I was on the thresholds of death, and I had a very, on that threshold, I had a very strange experience. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything that I can't measure or, or count. And uh, there was my dead father over me, welcoming me to the other side. And I said to the doctor, because I was still conversant, I said to the doctor, you got to hurry. You're, you're losing me right now. I'm going. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Sebastian Younger, an award-winning author, journalist, and filmmaker. His newest book, Freedom, discusses the innate conflict between the need for community and the desire for independence. Sebastian is also the founder of Vets Town Hall, an organization that gives veterans a platform to share their stories. Sebastian, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Freedom, your latest book, but... I have to revisit your previous bestseller, Tribe, which I first read as a veteran while at Team Rubicon, uh, and it spoke to everyone I knew in a way that no other book about the veteran experience did. Uh, But I reread it recently as, I guess, a citizen, a citizen of a democracy that is under threat from within. And I want to read you a quote from it and get your reaction. You wrote, It may be worth considering whether middle-class American life, for all its material good fortune, has lost some essential sense of unity that might otherwise discourage alienated men from turning apocalyptically violent. Did you ever imagine when writing that, that something like January 6th could happen in America? I didn't imagine January 6th specifically, but when I wrote this in the summer of 2015, the Republican primary was in full swing, and there was an awful lot of violent rhetoric around our political conversation. And there was also this sort of bizarre fetishizing of of guns, which is such a puzzle. You know, like, I mean, guns are a tool, and they're a good tool, and I sort of get it, and I own a couple myself. But the sort of worshiping of, of firearms seemed like a particular moment in this country's history. And in fact, sign of how very, very safe and protected we are, that we can indulge such fantasies and not not understand their true danger. So no, I didn't picture January 6th itself. It's too outrageous to picture, just like 9-11 was too outrageous to picture. But as soon as it happened, tragically, it sort of made all the, all the sense in the world. You talked about the fetishization of, of guns. I feel like that has been ratcheted up um, you know, the way ratchets work, they only go in one direction. And as rhetoric escalates and, and, and passions escalate, you have to up the stakes. And now that same community, that same movement seems to be 
fetishizing insurrection or civil war. Have you seen the same thing, like this glamorization of of internal strife? Yeah, I mean, it feels like if you're a, a Republican lawmaker and you don't get busted at an airport carrying a loaded gun, you're not really Republican enough. I mean, I fear that that's where the old and venerable and necessary Republican Party is sort of headed at the moment. It's very puzzling. But, you know, I would say about January 6th, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in combat and I've spent a lot of time with American forces in combat. And the sort of bozos that dressed themselves up in camouflage and attacked our nation's capital, they they're sort of basquerading as like combat veterans and all that. Like it, it seems to be, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but it seems to be that virtually none of those guys had actually seen any combat whatsoever overseas. That they were sort of playing out a sort of like fantasy of themselves in a war zone. They either dodged or missed the real fighting overseas. And so they're sort of cooking up a dramatic situation for themselves where they can act out the, the part of hero. And it's, um, among other things, it's juvenile and pathetic. It's also, you know, very dangerous to our, very dangerous to our nation. And, I, you know, I think only people that haven't seen what a 120 millimeter mortar can do to the human body, who haven't seen what a 762 round can do to, to, to a person's body. Only people that haven't seen such things could imagine that war is um, in any way romantic or appealing in the context of this nation, right? I mean, I mean that we would have a sort of armed civil conflict in this nation is such a preposterous fantasy. And it seems to be one that a sort of puzzling number of, of men and women, unfortunately, on the sort of right side of the political spectrum, indulge in. I don't know if they really mean it literally, but but even if they don't mean it literally, it's terribly dangerous. They're very, very dangerous thoughts and completely undemocratic, unpatriotic, un-American, virtually uh, a form of treason. We've spent some time on this show talking about the the strange appeal that, that this movement has to a subset of veterans. And we had a previous guest, I, I believe it was um, former Navy SEAL Dan Barkov, but it might have been someone else who said the most dangerous insurrectionist is the one who missed the war, the vet who missed the war by 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, then he and I are on the same page. I, I think that's very true. And I think if you go through the people that were in the rotunda or in the Capitol building and pick out the guys who claim they were combat vets, I bet virtually none, if not none of them were actually in combat. One of the things I and again, I understand firearms, the need for them, their appeal, all of that. Um, one of my problems with firearms is that it they allow cowards to imagine that they're brave men. Right? They imagine cowards to imagine that they're heroes. It's too easy. It's too easy a shortcut to something that feels like a kind of masculine strength. And again, as a shortcut, it's pathetic. Your last book talks a lot about masculinity and about this innate need among primarily men to test themselves. And that's something that that you lived. Um, you talk about having been to war many times and thankfully been back every time. But what inside you drove you to wind up on that airfield in Sarajevo that first time? Yeah, I mean, I should say that the, you know, the the two sexes, if we can limit ourselves to two at the moment, I understand there's a broader conversation there. But just for the time being, men and women have 
they both have burdens imposed by society and in some ways necessary burdens, right? So the, the burden imposed on young men is that you're really not considered mature. You're not considered a man until you've demonstrated in some ways your strength and selflessness, your willingness to make sacrifices for society, for others. Uh, but the problem with sort of safe, mechanized, technologized modern society is that there's really no need for that kind of sacrifice and strength on the part of young men. And there's sort of no way to prove that you're willing to make those sacrifices if called upon. And, you know, every society transitions adolescent males to manhood through some sort of some sort of test. I mean, every sort of organic, small-scale tribal society, they, you know, most of them understand the need the young men's need to know that they're that they're worthy, that they're courageous. So if you grow up in an American suburb, as I did, you can get to age 18, 19, 20, and really wonder, am I a man? And the language is filled with question marks about that. I mean, you know, people, men and women both, are very happy to say, come on, be a man about it. Man up, right? That means be a mature person. Stop thinking just about yourself. They don't say woman up, be a woman about it, because on some level, I think society assumes that adult females are mature, are, are, are women. They've, they've graduated to sort of adult status in a way that a 25-year-old male might actually not have. And so what does be, the idea of being a man mean to a, a, someone who grew up in a safe suburb? Well, for me, it meant testing myself in ways where I had to be courageous and competent and self-sacrificing in order to prove my abilities, my worthiness. And I did a number of things that, that tested me in those ways. But one of them was, at least in my imagination, one, one, of, one of them was to go to Sarajevo. Um, during the war, my father was a refugee from two wars, the Spanish Civil War and World War II. War has been part of his family, my family, uh, since I can remember. And I went to Sarajevo to sort of see what war was, to become a journalist, to become a war reporter, and inevitably to sort of test myself and demonstrate to myself that I, at age 32, uh, 31, at age 31, that I was worthy, that I was courageous, that I was, um, that I was noble in some way. I want to give you a chance to talk about the outsized role that women play in martial endeavors. You've written really compellingly recently, and I think some of this might be, might be highlighted by what's happening in Ukraine, about the moral courage of women and just how much tougher it is to defeat an enemy where, where women play a central role. Speak to that. Yeah, so the data say that in a, a sudden dangerous situation, you know, a house fire, things like that, almost invariably it's men, particularly young men, that sort of spring into action and, you know, climb the balustrade to get in the fourth floor window to save the kid. And, you know, someone else's kid, you know, it, you know, whatever, like that kind of immediate muscular courageous action jumps onto the subway tracks to, before the train hits the person who fell. You know, like... It's almost always men that do that. And they have a very, very high mortality rate when they do it. I think one in five, right? W women virtually never do that. But what women have in spades is an equally dangerous sort of moral courage. And women are often the component of the population that will, you know, protest what the Nazis were doing. For example, they, there was women who were often hiding Jewish families in their basements 
during the Holocaust in Northern Europe, uh, in, in Holland and Belgium, uh, a decision that men might not make. So, so there, you know, there you have equal forms of courage expressed slightly differently through gender. Um, so what I, in my book, Freedom, what I looked at is the uh, human's ability to have a smaller individual or a smaller group defeat a larger one. You know, throughout the animal kingdom, size wins, right? Size and strength win. In human affairs, it doesn't necessarily. And history is littered with examples of underdog groups, insurgents or political movements or what have you, revolutions, where the, the underdog groups that won. And one of the things they have in common is the involvement of women in the cause. And once you have, some journalists call this the, the grandmother effect, once you have grandmothers protesting injustice in the streets, you know you have virtually the entire society behind that movement. And it's only a matter of time until the leader falls, the leader fails. And if it's just a bunch of young men in the street throwing Molotov cocktails, you can sort of bet that once they open up with the machine guns, that, that, that's over with. But you get women in there. And it really changes the dynamic. I looked at the labor movement about 100 years ago in this country. And in Lawrence, Massachusetts, there was a, a, a strike at a textile mill that got very violent. And um, the National Guard was there with, you know, fixed bayonets confronting these, you know, young men, immigrant men who were protesting horrendous working conditions. And then the protesters started putting women on the front line. And the soldiers didn't know what to do. They weren't going to bayonet women, right? And, and it tipped the balance. And one cop, one frustrated police chief said, one cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And partly as a result of that, the strikers won. I've got that quote right in front of me. And uh, in the context I have it, you write it as a lesson for Putin. And you close it by saying, when women get involved in a rebellion, it's often just a matter of time before they win. Yeah. I mean, I wrote an article for Vanity Fair that sort of like boiled down, in the context of, of Ukraine, that boiled down the thoughts from my book, Freedom, of last year. I, you know, basically, you look at the insurgents, insur insurgents, the, 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 the people of Ukraine that are, that are fighting off the Russian military. Um, they've got all three things that successful underdog groups typically have. They're fighting for a cause that feels ancient and noble, which is basically freedom. That, I mean, the ability to be autonomous and self-defining. Every, everyone understands the, the human virtue of that and why it's so necessary to human dignity. And uh, something that I don't think the Russians really think that they're fighting for. I, God knows what those young boys in Russian uniforms think they're fighting for. Uh, so you need to have a transcendent cause such as freedom and safety. Um, you need to have leaders who are willing to die for the cause, like literally die, right? When you have the Afghan president, Ghani, who fled with $200 million rather than face the Taliban, you know, you have, you know, you, you have so, a leader who's not willing to die for the cause. Well, Clearly, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is willing to die. He stayed in place, knowing his life was um, not worth a plug nickel if the Russians took over. And there he is, defiant and courageous. And then finally, you need the involvement of women. And that is often a hallmark of a movement that will ultimately be successful, like the Irish uprising you know, around 100 years ago in Ireland against British rule. Are you at all tempted to go to Ukraine to report? Uh I mean, I'm tempted to do all kinds of things that I wouldn't really consider doing for a moment. Um, yeah, I mean, my war reporting, I, I look back, you know, it was a previous era in my life. I look back on it with a lot of fondness. But now I'm, um, 
you know, I've, I've stopped war reporting. I have two little girls, a five-year-old, a two-year-old, who are my central joy and meaning in life, along with my wife. And no, it's I'm, I'm not getting on a plane to go over there, although I wish them well. And, I've, and I read the news every day, and I think, wow, sometimes the good guys win. That's what I wanted to get to, because you are a relatively recent father, and I'm wondering how that has changed your worldview on one hand and your internal view on the other, your your risk tolerance, your sense of adventure. How has it changed you? Well, I mean, quite some years ago, I uh, quite a few years ago, I um, I stopped war reporting uh, after my friend and colleague and brother Tim Hetherington was killed in Libya. I stopped war reporting because I saw the effect of one's death on everyone who loves you know, everyone who loves you, you know, and I, and, and all of a sudden going to war didn't seem like noble and courageous. It seemed selfish and and potentially hurtful to everyone you love. So I, you know, I when I saw the effect on Tim's friends and family, uh, the effect of his death, I was like, no, I don't want to be that guy. You know, like maybe 20 years ago, but not now at age 50. I'm not going to do that to to my people, right? So now it's 10 years on. Um, I have a family. I, my risk tolerance is zero, right? I mean, like literally zero. Like I, I don't, you know, if something happens to me, my daughters won't have a father. I, I mean, forget about my loss. Like it's, I, I, mean, I can't do that to them. I love them too much. And my role is too important with them and not to mention for my wife. So a zero risk tolerance. I don't cross the street against the light. I mean, you know, it's kind of laughable sometimes. Tell us just a, a little bit about Tim. I know People miss him terribly. And it was a trip to Libya, right, reporting on that conflict where where he was killed? Yeah, so Tim and I were colleagues in Afghanistan when we were with American forces in the Korangal Valley, and he joined. I, was wanting, I, I wanted to make a documentary about this platoon and write a book, and he started working with me a few months into the deployment and, you know, quickly saw that it was a good project and joined forces with me. And we made a film called Restrepo that got, we had a lot of success and uh, went all the way to the Oscars. And we didn't take an Oscar, but we came awfully close. It was a very exciting time. And a few weeks later, you know, in journalistic terms, like surfs up, like the Arab Spring is roiling in the Middle East. And uh, we were anxious to get back into the thick of it and report on what was the happenings of the world. And we had an assignment for Vanity Fair to cover the Arab Spring in any way that we saw fit. And uh, we decided to go to Libya. And at the last moment, I couldn't go uh, for personal reasons. He went on his own and he was killed uh, in the city of Misrata. He was hit by a mortar, fragments from a mortar round fired by Gaddafi's forces, hit in the groin, and he bled out in the back of a rebel pickup truck uh, racing for the Misrata hospital. And um, I uh, I got the news of that through a phone call probably an hour or two after it happened. And, uh, you know, I just, I was hit with this avalanche of uh, um, shock and grief and guilt. You know, I should have been there to protect him. I should have been there to help him. It should have been me, not him. It's, uh, you know, I didn't have children at the time, obviously. And, and I just was um, devastated with guilt. And it took a very, very long time to uh, work through that. And for the you know, first time I really understood what soldiers were saying, this sort of survivor's guilt, I never quite understood it. Like, come on, man, he was killed with a, you know, he got, took a bullet in the forehead 300 meters away from you. How is that your fault, right? I would have this conversation with soldiers. <laughs> I know, I never, and they could never quite explain it and never, never quite understand it until Tim was killed. And 6,000 miles away or whatever it was, like, 
it was my fault somehow. And it took me years to dig myself out of that. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I'm wondering how your experience as a professional storyteller has blended with your experience of, of war and trauma and whether you think that's given you a special insight into how storytelling can be its own catharsis. Yeah, I, I mean, let's see. When I'm doing, when I'm speaking publicly, there's a big toggle switch in me that switches off my emotions. And I make sure the last thing I do before I go to the, the podium to give my talk is to switch that thing off so I don't uh, get choked up talking about things that otherwise are extremely emotional for me. And so, you know, those, those moments for me are not cathartic in the same way that talking to, you know, friends and loved ones might be. What I'm trying to do when I talk publicly, and that would include this, you know, podcast like this, is I'm trying to help people, you know, like I don't, I, I myself don't need help in that context. Like I'm, I'm okay. I get my help from other sources, but I am in a position, I think, to make sense out of, make some enduring sense out of confusing stories. Um, sort of talk about how pain and trauma and hardship can actually lead to um, positive growth as well. And I've experienced all those things. So I, you know, for me, when I talk publicly, it's not about my catharsis. It's about how can I talk about these topics in a way that people can take away from here uh, uh, in a way that they can sort of make use of later the way I have made use of these ideas on my own in my own life. Do you think there's a way to bring that approach to communities? I'm thinking about just how divided we are as a society and some of the collective traumas we've experienced. How much faith do you put in, in storytelling the right way to create some kind of shared sense of, of purpose or identity? What hope do you have for our democracy's ability to, to rise above the division we're, we're now experiencing? I don't know. It's hard to tell. You know, we're a nation of 330 million. That's a sort of experiment in human history, running a group of that size. And, you know, if one political party decides that the democratic process will keep it effectively out of power uh, for the foreseeable future, and I'm talking about the GOP right now, you can kind of understand their sort of like cold-blooded calculation. Okay, well, then we will subvert the democratic process because otherwise we're out of luck. We're no longer at the poker table, right? And so I don't know what calculations they're making. Would they really rather 
have power in an autocracy rather than share power in a democracy? I don't know. I would have thought no. I mean, back in the days of Nixon, the Republican Party told Nixon, if you don't resign, we're going to impeach you. So Nixon spared them the trouble and resigned. I'm not sure that would happen in today's GOP. In fact, I'm sure it wouldn't. So I don't know how far they'll fall from their democratic ideals. It's an awfully strange question for me. But, you know, in terms of um, uniting the country among the people, right? Forget about the politicians, among the people. There are ways to do that. And shared trauma is something that is, is very, really bonds people very effectively. And so you get trapped in an elevator with the three people for, you know, eight hours. You're, you got, you know, the, you're pretty bonded by the end of it. You know, you go through the Blitz in London during World War II, you go through a hurricane or tornado, that bonds people very, very powerfully, uh, an earthquake. And it erases all these ghastly distinctions of race and class and income and politics. It erases those distinctions for a while in a way that people find very, very liberating. So one way to make use of this is there was a, a dance a ceremony called the Gourd Dance among the native tribes of the Great Plains, uh, northern and southern Great Plains, uh, before you know Western domination, American domination, uh, and you know basically the you know warriors would go out and fight their enemies, whoever they may be, and come back after an exceptionally bloody you know hand to hand sort of experience as warfare was in those days, and would come back you know victory hopefully victorious. Uh, prideful and traumatized, probably. And so the community would allow them, each warrior, to sing and dance and act out and tell of his exploits on the battlefield, what he did for his people. And I thought, how do you, how can you incorporate that into modern American society? And that's where Veterans Town Hall was born. The idea that on, um, and you can go to our website, Vets Town Hall, it's very easy to find. This is a very easy thing to do. You know, basically, in any community, the town hall is the center of governance, the center of the community. It's not open for business on Veterans Day. So open it up, turn on the PA system. And our idea is that, uh, and we've done this for years now, in an increasing number of towns and cities, um, any veteran of any war who served in any capacity, who harbors any opinions whatsoever about the war that he or she fought in, has the right to stand up for 10 minutes and tell the community, the community that they served for, that they, that they fought for, what it felt like to go to war. Uh, some veterans will be very proud and say it was the high point of their lives. Some veterans will be very angry that they had to do this and that they did this and that they came home and uh, were received in the manner in which they were received. And some veterans will be, frankly, crying too hard to really say much of anything because they're just saddled with such profound grief. It's all part of war. And when, when people do that, the listeners um, become morally engaged in the war. It's their war too, right? We sent them over there. Our tax dollars, our airplanes, our government decided that these wars must be fought and we sent young people to do it. And they came back with burdens that should be our burdens as well. And when you have that kind of cathartic, and it is cathartic, public experience, not only is the veteran helped by unburdening themselves of these thoughts, these feelings, or celebrating their thoughts and feelings, as the case may be, but the community itself is asked to engage and shoulder those burdens and participate in the celebrations. And that is, a, that is an experience that completely transcends race, income, politics, all those ghastly divisions. One of the most important elements 
of that experience, which is reflected in the way many Native cultures welcomed warriors back into the fold, was the care taken not to uh, valorize or lionize or put them on a pedestal in a way that, that separated them even further from the society they were trying to reenter. Yeah, what I mean, you, yeah go ahead. One of the problems with overly lionizing, valorizing veterans or anybody is that you sort of ghettoize them in this sort of place of valor that no one else can touch. And what you want, I mean, the task is to reintegrate people back into ordinary society, reintegrate people who have come back from, you know, heroic duty and, and, and experienced trauma, or even didn't experience trauma, were just a supply clerk at a rear base somewhere, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter, but you have to bring them back. And you can't bring them back into normal society and make the claim that they are physically and morally superior to everybody else. You can't do it. What you want to do is honor their service, acknowledge their service, thank them for their service, and then ask them to become a normal person again. There's a wonderful painting by Winslow Homer of a Civil War vet. It was painted in 1865 uh, or six, right? Immediately after the Civil War ended. And it shows a Union soldier with his sort of musket and rucksack and his his military blues, uh, his uh, Union uniform sort of piled up in the corner on, on the ground, uh, the corner of the painting. And he has a, a big um, scythe and he's harvesting wheat. And it's called The Veteran in New Fields. You know, basically the message is really clear. Like, okay, done fighting, well done on the war, uh, welcome home, now get to work. Like, we need you. That, I mean, the, you know, it's like, it, it's late September. The wheat needs to be gotten in right before it gets cold. You know, like life continues. Now grab your scythe and get to work. And that's an enormously healthy thing for veterans to be asked to do. And, you know, I think when you, I mean, of course, there are people that are completely, um, uh, deeply, deeply physically and psychologically damaged from combat. And they must be taken care of by our society. It's immoral not to. But, you know, I think there's also a subset of the veteran population that has been affected by the war, very affected, uh, but are still functional. And, you know, when the when the government sort of warehouses them with, uh, you know, 100% PTSD or whatever disability, just enough money so that they don't have to, never have to work again in their lives, but not enough money to really do anything with their lives. You're basically, you know, if you want to engineer, if you want to engineer a depressed alcoholic, like give a veteran enough money to like live in their parents' basement and not have to work and see what happens. You know, I mean, it's a really dangerous thing to do. If you call to them to continue contributing to society and to now engage, like World War II veterans, engage in the society on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, my, my wife is the youngest of 12. Her father fought in World War II. He came back and he was, he ran a local savings and loan bank in a little small town in the Midwest and then became the mayor. You know, he went right. He went right to work. He came home. Went right to work, and he served three straight years from North Africa to Sicily, Italy, France, all the way to Austria on foot, right in the infantry, fighting the entire way. And he came back and went right to work. It's a very, very healthy thing if you're capable, if you're able. It's a very, very healthy thing for veterans to do, and for us to ask them to do. Yeah, it's a tough distinction to make sometimes, given the the archetypes that are out there, and it. And it takes either fellow vets or folks with immense credibility with that population like you to to make that distinction between those who absolutely need help 
and need to be supported in some cases for the rest of their lives. And those who who need a hand, but um, who are going to yeah. be be better off if, like you said, they get out of the basement and and um, you know you give them that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the human species for hundreds of thousands of years lived in small groups where everyone's contribution was necessary. Groups of 30, 40, 50 people in a pretty harsh environment. And young and old, male and female, like everyone was sort of needed to, to make sure that everyone survived. And so the only way, I mean, your survival came from being part of that group. Like humans do not survive alone in nature. They die immediately, right? We all survive, whether you're a hunter-gatherer in, in Africa or a a, you know, American citizen in New York, you know, whatever, we all survive because we're part of a group. And the way to ensure that you will continue to be part of that group is to be necessary, to be needed. So when you sort of warehouse someone, say, you know, look, you know what, you fought well done in the war. We don't really need you anymore. We'll give you just enough money so you don't starve. Uh, but don't worry about contributing anymore to this country because we really don't need you. We're good. You know, don't worry about it. You know, what you're doing is triggering this ancient human anxiety, like, I'm not needed, I'm not needed, therefore I'm not safe. I mean, they, the group may decide that they don't want me anymore if I'm not, I'm not needed. I mean, that's why people get so depressed when they, when they retire. The risk of suicide goes way up when people retire. You know, it's, it's this ancient human fear. If I'm not needed, I'm not safe, I'm not wanted, like, it's terrifying. So that's what we're doing. Un, unintentionally, that's what we're doing to vets. The picture you paint there describes a much larger share of the population in this modern era where, you know, we feel constantly surrounded by others, but as lonely as we we have ever been. Yeah, I mean, modern society is a strange thing. It's, it's miraculous in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, it's the first time in history that you can, I think, that you can go through an entire day uh, seeing thousands of faces and not recognize any of them. You know, if you live in New York City or in a major city, I mean, <laughs> like in one day, how many people do you see? Thousands, hundreds and hundreds, thousands, and not know any of them. Like, that's a very, very strange thing. Like being alone in the in the woods is one thing. And being among people that you know is another thing. And those are all very, very human experiences. But being alone among people, like that's novel. And I think psychologically, it's very, very hard on, on our species. I've been rereading uh, Hannah Arendt of course, famous for her observation about the banality of evil. But I've been diving into her insights on loneliness and authoritarianism. And I don't think it's ever been truer that a lonely society is vulnerable to authoritarian demagogues. Yeah, I mean, um, kind of blanking on his name, um, he was a wonderful writer. He was a stevedore. He was a dock worker in San Francisco for a long time and brilliant, brilliant man who wrote in the shortly after World War II. His name will come to me. God, I can't believe I forgot it. Anyway, he, he made this amazing point about fascists and how the people that joined these sort of fascist movements uh, for these sort of grand causes are often people with sort of disappointing or failed lives. And what it allows them to do is feel greater than themselves, part of something bigger than themselves. Um, as the wonderful band Queens of the Stone Age sang at one point, the lead singer just died apparently, uh, I want something to die for to make it beautiful to live, right? And so what, the, what he found, God, I wish I blanked on his name. What, what this writer found, he, he looked at the communists in Russia 
and the fascists in Germany and other European countries. And what he found was that the most fervent adherents, and I would say this applies to the January 6th people as well, the most fervent adherents were actually people that were striving for a meaningful life and didn't really feel that they had one until this great moment in history where they could perform this heroic role sort of saving civilization. And um, that's a terrifying idea. And demagogues make great use of that. And I think that's what Hannah Arendt meant. I do too. What are you working on now, Sebastian? I had a very traumatic event happen to me a couple of years ago. I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in a small artery in my abdomen, like a a completely... um, sort of bizarre and rare and anatomical anomaly and not related to anything really. And it, um, you know, on asymptomatic and undiagnosed and it ruptured just one day it ruptured and basically bled out into my abdomen. It's something that is, um, you know, almost always fatal. And, uh, it took me 90 minutes to get to the ER and my blood pressure was 60 over 40. I mean, I was on the thresholds of death. And I had a very, on that threshold, I had a very strange experience. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything that I can't measure or or count. And uh, there was my dead father over me, welcoming me to the other side. And I said to the doctor, because I was still conversant, I said to the doctor, you got to hurry. You're, you're losing me right now. I'm going. And they put, he was cutting my neck open to put a line into my jugular. And they put 10 units of blood into me and stabilized me. And I'm a healthy guy. I'm a strong guy. I gave them something to work with. And it took them another eight hours, but they finally managed to find the, the ruptured artery and and plug it, embolize it with a catheter embolism. And, uh, and I managed to survive. And so I'm writing about that experience, both medically, um, psychologically, but also um, sort of metaphysically, like what was my father doing there? And how, and it's a very common experience. I'm really sort of curious about near-death experiences because the dead show up to welcome you. It's very common. It happens all over the world, many, many people. And it happened to me, and I just can't explain it. Your father was a, a physicist, right? He wasn't a, a, yeah. a priest or a, a monk? <laughs> no. Or? no, he was a he was an atheist physicist, yeah. And, uh, um, and there he was. And I wanted nothing to do with them, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, I love my dad, but I was like, not now, dad. We have nothing to talk about. I'm staying over here. Like, get out of here. And, but it was very, very traumatic as well. I mean, I've been in lots of combat and things that, you know, whatever. I've run my risks and I'm, yeah, I'm fine from all that. But the trauma of almost dying in your own home of something completely unexpected, undiagnosable, just boom, like that. And that maybe it could happen again, which it can't. But, I, you know, you... I, I, I wound up with a real sort of panic disorder, you know, anxiety disorder after that and very depressed and with a lot of trauma. I mean, all very, very common ex- symptoms after an experience like that. It was way worse than combat. I look forward to to reading it and I, I can only imagine how, how traumatic that must have been. Yeah. Last question, uh, because I've been looking for this quote that is stuck in my head and I can't find the um, the source in your writings for it. You You... You shared once that you thought God's greatest oversight was that dogs don't outlive their humans. Uh, does that ring a bell? Is that you? Yeah, God's greatest oversight is that dogs don't live as long as men. Yeah, yeah dogs don't live as long as men. I have shared that with several friends who have lost their canine yeah. companions, and they they all appreciated hearing it. I mean, imagine if you you made a sort of like— 
when you when you got together with your dog, it was for life, the way marriage is or is supposed to be. Imagine what the possibilities. And the other sort of corollary, the other of God's great oversights is that men, and by men I mean people, but this is in the context of a group, I, a, a trip I took with a group of men, so that men can't run as fast as dogs. So imagine if both things were true, what you could get up to. <laughs> Uh, I love imagining that, Sebastian. It has been uh, great having you. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, so let's try to do it again. Thank you. I look forward to it. That was Sebastian Younger. You can follow him on Twitter at Sebastian Younger. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.